Hi, my name's Andy Chamberlain, and this is the Creative Writer's Tool Belt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. You can find out more at my website, andrewjchamberlain.com, where you'll also find out about the Creative Writer's Tool Belt handbook, which condenses all of the very best advice and insight from my expert guests and me in one place. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Creative Writer's Tool Belt podcast, and it's helpful to you on your writing journey. And welcome to episode 132 of the Creative Writers Toolbelt podcast. The date today is the 19th of December as I record this. And so we're preparing for Christmas. But I have this episode for you before the festivities really begin. And I hope that you will find it a fascinating episode that touches on something that doesn't really get a great deal of airtime in conversations about the craft. And that is the challenge that writers who have a disability face and also how any writer can present a character who has a disability. And these issues and many more are things that I discuss with my guest for this episode, the New Zealand independent author, Steph Green. Steph describes herself as a blogger, an author, a metalhead, and an alternative wedding celebrant, which is an interesting combination. And what I found really interesting and inspiring about Steph's story is that even though she suffers from a rare genetic condition, which means that she's now legally registered as blind, she has still managed to live a full life and to in fact earn her living from her writing. So Steph's tale is an example of how determination and optimism can triumph over the challenges of life. Now, before I bring you that interview, in other news, I have two projects on the go at the moment, which I hope to be able to complete in 2019. And I want to tell you a little bit about one of them now. So one project that I really hope will come to fruition next year is a space opera novel I'm working on called The Centauri Survivors. And this is going to be the story of what happens when mankind discovers its first habitable exoplanet a planet that we can actually reach. And it will be exploring the lengths that some people go to to claim that planet for themselves and also the courage and character that other people need to show to survive and to do the right thing. I'm really excited to see this project come to fruition. I've been working on it for a number of years now. A few of you listening to this will know about this book because I have mentioned it in the past. And as it comes together, I will be telling you more about that. The other project I'm working on, can't tell you anything about it just yet. I will be able to really soon. All I can say now is that it's going to be a collaboration and is aiming, as with all of the work I do on the craft, to give you practical, accessible advice to help you with your writing. So more about these projects soon. But for now, here is my conversation with the indomitable Steph Green. I hope you enjoy it. So, Steph, welcome to the Creative Writers Toolbelt podcast. It's great to have you with us today. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's great to be here. So, can you tell us a little bit about the cultural influences that informed your childhood that had a big impact on you? And that could be books, TV, film, any kind of media, really. Oh, it's... Um, I love this question, actually. Um, there's <laughs> so, so, so many. Um, but I've kind of... So, I kind of... When I think about this, I think sort of three things yeah and the first one was there was this this old tv show that was called chippendale rescue rangers i don't know if you've ever seen that one um, i've got a vague a vague recollection of it <laughs> <laughs> oh, so it was kind of i think it started in 1989 and okay. it was a disney disney show um and it had the chipmunks um disney yes. chipmunks chippendale and they had this detective agency and they um, in the detective agency, they had this this like fat mouse called Monterey Jack, and they had a little fly called Zipper, and they had this mechanic um, named Gadget, who was a woman, 
mm. like a female mouse. Yes. And they used to solve all these these little tiny crimes that were kind of too small <laughs> for the police to deal with. Yeah. And they had this, this arch nemesis and he was called um, Fat Cat and he was like the mafia boss. <laughs> and Gadget was kind of my first feminist heroine. Um, she used to say she had a mind-bashingly high IQ um, and she got kind of bored with anything that didn't really interest her but she was always like collecting little bits of garbage and making like these crazy inventions that would help them solve the crimes um and she was i loved that she was kind of part of this super masculine crime fighting world but she was just a complete you know totally kicked ass um and i would always play Chippendale Rescue Rangers like kind of you know in real life and i would always i would always get to be gadget that was that was what i got to do Another thing was the Goosebump series by R.L. Stein um, yes. for books. And I had this – my mum is amazing, and she would always encourage my sister and I to read, and we were super voracious readers, which must have cost her a lot of money. <laughs> um, and so we'd go to the library every week and at every few days because um, we'd read through all our books really quickly. But um, she got this kind of subscription um, from the local bookshop. So as soon as they got the latest Goosebumps book in, and I think they're releasing one a month, um, wow. we would get it. And we had these horrific arguments and fights over which one of us got to read the book first. <laughs> And we'd totally race through a Goosebumps book in an hour or two. Um, and then we'd read out all the scary bits to each other. It, yeah, they were just the best books. My favorite one was this one called The Curse of the Mummy, which was obviously set in ancient Egypt. And there was a mummy. And it was kind of the book that really started my interest in ancient Egypt, which eventually grew into a real lifelong fascination with archaeology and ancient mm. cultures and mythology. And mm. that was sort of what started my desire to become an archaeologist. And so those books probably also kind of fueled my love of kind of the dark and the gothic and horror and stuff like that. And then the third thing is music, which is a huge, huge, huge part of my life. And my parents had this kind of huge old sound system with these massive ancient speakers. And I would sit right in front of them and kind of read books or do puzzles or whatever. And I just loved the way the music kind of pulsated through your body. It was just amazing. And so I kind of grew up on like Pink Floyd and Queen and Bruce Springsteen from a really young age. Um, And then as a teenager, I discovered Metallica and Iron Maiden Mm. and metal. And that's kind of, that's basically my life. And that that might lead us on to the to the next thing I wanted to ask you about, which is just a kind of development on that question, which is what what are the cultural influences on your life now? And this may be loads of them, I don't know, but uh, the, the major cultural influences for you now. Oh god, there's just so many. Um, <laughs> I have become a little bit. I was never that big into television, um, okay. but we got. Um, we got Netflix uh, a couple of years ago because I wanted to see the remake of the Gilmore Girls. Um, yes. And um, and I sort of because here in New Zealand, I don't know if it is over there, but here in New Zealand, you get kind of one month free Netflix, and we were always saying we're going to get one month free, <laughs> and then we're going to get rid of it. And uh, <laughs> I think I can see like, where this is going. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we've had it for like three years, and we have not got rid of it. Um, and I watch so much television; it's really bad, but also it's. <laughs> It's kind of nice to have a break. So, you know, they're just doing so well at telling stories in that yes. medium now, I yeah. think. Um, yes. I mean, The Handmaid's Tale is just amazing. Um, there's a show called Longmire, which um, my husband and I have watched about four times in the last 
couple of years. Um, it's this stunning modern kind of revisionist western, and it's just oh, the the writing and the cast and the soundtrack, like everything is perfect. This American horror story, these penny dreadful, um, just oh, it's just so much great kind of oh, kind of horror that oh, I just mm. love it. Um, <laughs> is this the show called Brooklyn Nine Nine, which I yes. love, and the same people did The Good Place. And just the having humor like that, where it's not based on real passe stereotypes, and you know, men are like this, and women are like this, and you know, the women get to be smart and get to have the jokes. That, yeah, I just yeah, that was just so good. And also, Gilmore Girls, um, which I watched sort of through university, and you know, basically that character Rory was she's kind of me, and then they just completely ruined it in the reboot so there was that and I'm still hugely 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 like music is a big part of my life my husband's a drummer you know we kind of travel all over the world to see different metal bands that we love Mm. um I'm mostly into heavy metal and um rock but a lot of kind of folk music as well and I've recently become kind of quite heavy like quite into sort of southern style rock um just anything that's a bit dark i often say nick cave is my spirit animal (laughs) (laughs) Um, what else um books i love china mayville oh yeah yeah you're big it's on me um arthur conan doyle i've actually got a sherlock holmes tattoo okay yeah, anything that's got a little bit of a gothic lean, like Kate Morton, Lane Moriarty. Yeah, um, yeah. Just writer Laura Purcell, who wrote this amazing gothic horror called The Silent Companions, which is like one of the best gothic horrors I think that's come out in recent sort of recent years. Yeah. And just like all the other indie authors who are just killing it and just <laughs> being amazing, like yeah, just yeah, like. Yeah, this world is so cool. <laughs> there's there's a lot of it about, isn't it? I, I I'm a fan of Charlie Melville's work as well, actually. I do like I do quite like weird fiction. And uh people like M. John Harrison as well. I don't know if you've read any of his stuff, but that there's oh, Yeah, and I think that 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 might have you might you might have quite like his work. <laughs> but yeah, China China Melville off that list that you mentioned, superb stuff. I wanna and I wanna move on to talk about you now as a writer. So good. can you tell us a little bit about how you came to be a writer did you start at a young age did you come to it a little bit later on what's your story with writing um so i was always a i always really enjoyed writing and i had like from a young age i had kind of different like i wanted to be a paleontologist i was going to be an architect and then from about the age of eight or something i was going to be an archaeologist which was my kind of what I what I mean that's what I went to university for so that okay. never really changed yeah but I was always going to be on the side I was going to be a writer as well yeah um and so I could never write a story in like a hundred words like they would ask you in class I would take like two thousand words or whatever <laughs> and I had these kind of really sort of fully formed worlds in my head that I would return to again and again and I loved those kind of series like um, Goosebumps and um, Sweet Valley and stuff like that and I always wanted to yeah, I, I wanted to be one of those authors. So, yeah, so I went to university to be an archaeologist, and what ended up happening was I, I did really well, but it was very hard because of my eyesight, because mm. um, I'm, I'm legally blind. It was very hard to convince any employer, potential employer, that I would make a good archaeologist or a good museum curator. And there was a lot of unfair discrimination, but also I wasn't kind of strong enough to push my case and, you know, kind of explain to people how – you know, this wasn't this wasn't a, a disability that was going to impact 
the job. Yeah. Um, so I spent 18 months, two years kind of looking for work in that field, couldn't find anything. And I had a particularly bad, bad day where someone said something quite discriminatory to me and I came home and I was in tears and my husband said to me well you know you, you could look at it you know that sucks um like you know no knowing it that sucks but you could look at it like this you could say well actually I've kind of done archaeology like you've been on all these digs you um I got mm. to work in in Greece um and it was amazing um like you know you've worked in museums like you've done all this cool stuff so maybe you could say well I've done archaeology so what would I do next which was a thing that people couldn't tell me that I couldn't do and the obvious thing was writing I would be a writer and so I kind of I did what any self-respecting millennial would do I googled how to make a living as a writer um, (laughs) and I tried to do I basically spent the next sort of 10 years I think yeah would have been about 10 years trying to do everything on that list so I was like I started a blog um, I started um, writing for magazines um, I wrote blog articles for other people I had this and I had this vampire book that I was working on all through university and I I finished it off and I sent it off to this competition where you could win the chance to pitch it to um, an editor at a really big publishing house and and I won cool and I was like, wow. And so I pitched it to this editor and she loved the idea. And I ended up working with her for about five or six years on different books. Um, and she was a big early champion of my writing, but I just never quite gave her a book that she could publish. And then finally one day she said, this is it. This is the book that we're going to do. And I got, I got it. I got the publishing deal. Um, cool. And then, <laughs> and then <laughs> the um, editor decided to retire and the publishing house decided that this was the great time to kind of cut back on her uh, list. Okay. And so I got cut um, and I was, this was about 2013, something like that. I can't yeah. remember. And it was about the time where sort of indie authors like Hugh Howey and Amanda Hocking and um, J.A. Conrath were kind of talking about how they were you know, making all this money and finding this audience as indie authors. And I was looking down the barrel of basically having to start everything all over again from scratch and i was thinking well maybe i could give this this indie thing a go yes um, and so i i took one of my sort of trunked books that was never going to have a chance of being published anyway it was this ridiculous kind of humorous novel about metalheads that were fighting in the apocalypse it was ridiculous and <laughs> i i um i published that as my kind of my kind of starter book um, just to see if I liked the process. Yes. Um, and it sold abysmally. It sold like, I think it sold like 120 copies um, in total um, before I um, unpublished it. It was, you know, it was fun, but it had a lot of uh, like continuity problems and stuff like that. It right. It wasn't perfectly edited. Um, it had a good, nice cover, but the point was that it was so much fun to do. I loved it so much, um, and I wanted to do more of it. So I, so I took the series that the publisher was going to take, and I published those. Right. Um, and I was selling a few copies a month, like yeah, I think I was making like ten or twenty dollars a month or something like that. And then I was at a party one day, and sorry, this is quite a long story. No, carry on. <laughs> I, was at, carry on. <laughs> I was at a party one day, um, and um, with some friends, and everyone was talking about Fifty Shades of Grey. And I had read the first chapter of this book and I thought it was 
terrible. And I was going <laughs> on about how terrible it was and how badly written. And, well, I can't believe people would, you know, pay money to read that and stuff like this. And my friend, who quite likes the stories, was getting a little bit annoyed at my kind of holier than thou <laughs> attitude. And she says, well, it's not like you – could do any better you know it's not like you could write a book like that and i was like yeah well she's kind of right and so i said yeah right but in my head i was going challenge accepted yeah yeah (laughs) and so (laughs) it's quite you know it's quite funny because you know in my group of group of kind of quite crazy quite liberal quite adventurous friends i'm kind of the one that you know i can't say dirty words without going red kind of thing you know i'm kind of the like a little one in the corner um and so in secret, without telling anyone, not even my husband, I wrote this little short 30,000-word novella, which was a, a paranormal romance about this shapeshifter who was a fox, um, and he was a, an artist and, and a recluse because he, he didn't want anyone to discover that he was a shapeshifter, and then he falls in love with a, a curator, and there's a big shift of war, and, and, there was, and there was sex in it. And so I published it under my pen name, Stephanie Holmes, which was completely secret. It just kind of as a, like, to prove to myself that I could. Yes. And yeah. in, in the first the first couple of weeks, it sold like a thousand copies. <laughs> um, and I was like, oh gosh, <laughs> well, I didn't expect that to happen. And did you so, did you market it at all? I didn't. I so I didn't tell. I didn't tell the people that read my other books about it. I didn't. I basically just put it up on Amazon. I. I can't remember. I think it was very early days, so it was the first Kindle Unlimited. Yeah, like so it was KU one. So it was real early days, and there weren't that many books. And yeah, so I don't feel like I did any marketing at all. I think I just put it up. Kept expecting Amazon to call me and say, "Look, I'm really, really sorry, but we've you know we've sent you like someone else's like you know, <laughs> you know, we made a mistake." Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> But they never called, um, and I was like, "Oh, okay. Well, I should finish the story." So I wrote two more of these little thirty thousand word yeah, novels yeah. um, and published those, and you know they just kept selling. And so it was about the second month when I published the second one that I sort of sheepishly had to tell my husband, "Look, actually, I've kind of made all this money, but it's not <laughs> off of my it's not off of my super serious, you know, China Mayville style science fiction fantasy. It's off of um, this." like 30,000 word novella about a shape-shifting fox who falls in love and he was like okay then are you going to be writing any more and I was like yeah I am and so that was that was yeah I think that was 2000 mid 2015 and I've basically just been writing like mad ever since yeah. um I've got 24 books published under my two pen names and I quit my sort of officially quit my day job in February of this year to write novels full-time and yeah that's been amazing so wow. yeah that's where i'm at now so you you said you've got 24 books out now when you do publish a book now what do you do to to market that book or what do you do to make make get let people know about it oh so so when i do my stephanie holmes books which are the the paranormal romances which are sort of most of what i do these days yeah. um, they kind of they pay they pay the mortgage um what do i do so i send i've got a newsletter it's got a few thousand people on it, so I put it out to the newsletter. I have a reader group on Facebook, which has got 
about 800 people in it uh, and I just I so I kind of do a bunch of stuff for them like I might do it um, so so the last book that I published was the final book in a five book series and to kind of celebrate the end of the series I did a kind of had like a Facebook party and I invited all these other authors to come into my group okay. um, and their books and kind of do competitions and stuff and then I did this live webcast where I one of my really good friends um Katie Strange um, does these webcasts whenever she has a release and she has like balloons and she eats <laughs> cake and she like it's a real party <laughs> and it's real cool um, and, and everyone loves them and I was like oh that's such a great idea I'm going to do that because how cool is it to kind of interact with your readers like yeah. that but and I didn't end up with any time to make a cake so I was like well what's kind of celebratory and I quite I'm quite interested in, in alcohol and stuff like I brew my own um, mead and make my own wine yeah and so um, I have all, I have all this absinthe because I'm quite interested in, in absinthe and like kind of its cultural history and stuff like that. So I was like, oh, I'm going to have a glass of absinthe. So, so it's like 8 a.m. in the morning, um, <laughs> and I've got this like, well, like here's my celebratory absinthe. So I'm drinking this on um, on my webcast, and I tell whatever it's kind of tell people like little behind the scenes things that they might not know about the process of writing the book or little yeah. tidbits about the and stuff and then I had this big giveaway where I found little things online like candles and um, I had this really great because one of the characters um, drinks tea and I had this really awesome tea tin um, which is shaped like a book and the company that makes them they um, put like kind of punny tea punny titles on them from famous books so there's like instead of war and peace there's war and peach which is a peach flavored tea and there's oh, a I picture yeah. Of, yeah. Yeah, like a picture of Earl Grey instead of a picture of Dorian Gray kind of thing so I had one of those <laughs> and I, I had like a gift from every main character in the story in this big giveaway kit um, like this big swag pack and I in the webcast I kind of held up all the items and I'm like this is what this is and, and um, yeah and then I did this giveaway and I got sort of all other authors in the genre to kind of post it in their groups and there's also sort of Facebook groups where the readers hang out and I posted it there you could come win this thing and that got me a lot of interest in the series which was now complete so I kind of try and do things like that I haven't been recently doing a lot of price kind of related you know kind of discounty things on my my latest series but I do get quite regular book bubs on my old on my older so I've got sort of like 12 books, which are wide. And then the new series, the, the my latest series was in, in Kindle Unlimited. So all the wide books get quite regular book pubs. I think mm. I've had like four, four this year. Um, okay, cool. And it's been amazing. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, so they've quite often got a bit of a discount going and that kind of helps keep that series chunking along. Yeah. Um, but I'm about to do two free runs on the first book in – in my latest series um, in December as kind of like part of Christmas, sort of like group Christmas promotions. So hopefully that gets some new people interested in that. Yeah. Uh, So you're using Facebook and you've also got a a, a list that you send your newsletter out to. Uh, It sounds like they, and those are kind of quite important channels for you just to get, to be talking to your existing readers and to find new ones, I suppose. Yeah, that's certainly been the most useful thing that I've done sort of the, the last year. Um, okay. 18 months sure. definitely so i want to come back now uh, to something that you briefly mentioned earlier on you briefly mentioned that you are legally blind and and you have a disability so i just want to talk to you a little bit about that can you can you tell us a little bit about the disability that you have and the impact that it has on you first of all 
Um, sure. So the condition, the eye condition that I have is called achromatopsia, um, and it's quite rare. Um, and what it means is that in your eyes, you've got rod cells and you've got cone cells, and the rod cells are your the ones that activate at night. It's like your night vision. Right. Um, and the cone cells are the ones that you use during the day, and they give you like your color vision and stuff like that. And I don't have any cone cells. Well, I think I've got like three, and you're meant to have like a Three million. So, um, I, yeah. So I don't have any wow. of those. Yeah. Um, so I don't see any color at all, and it's it's kind of like using your night vision all the time. So um, it means that you often we kind of say it's a little bit like being snowblind when you go outside into the sun. Like you just yeah, you know, light is very bright. Yeah, and so it also comes with um, other kind of related conditions and so I've got this thing called nystagmus where my eyes blink all the time and kind of wobble and um, I am short-sighted to the point where it's quite it's significant enough the short-sightedness where I can't do things like I can't you know I'd never be able to drive um, okay. and yeah um, yeah so that is basically me and it kind of has the impact it has is sort of as big as I let it have, really. Growing up, it was kind of this big sort of Damocles that hung over my head because I felt as though it was a source of, you know, kind of all the bullying and, and anything mm. that I experienced. Mm. Um, and, like, it was kind of the source of all my misery, but not really because of the physical limitations, but just because of how other people perceived it and perceived me. Yes, um, yeah. And in a lot of ways, that's still kind of true. Like, you know, the visual limitations are, like, they exist, but they're kind of, minor like i can't drive i have to sit really close to the tv if i want to watch something um i have to sit in the front row of a movie theater um but that's kind of nice anyway because there's always lots of extra leg room i have a high contrast setting on my computer so it turns the screen into white text on the black background instead of the other way around and i have just a special desk with a really big screen set up um so that the screen is right in front of my nose i can't match my clothes i can't match my socks um other than that the impact's quite sort of quite minimal um, but maybe that's just kind of my attitude as well but you know I faced a lot of discrimination in the workplace especially when I was um, trying to be an archaeologist um, because of it people think it's really limiting and, and it's not and it's hard to explain that to someone who doesn't have a condition like this or doesn't mm. know someone that um, is you know blind or low vision or you know doesn't have anyone like that in their life and I, I feel like I feel as though I've kind of proven that in my own life but sometimes you just have to keep proving these things over and yeah. over again yeah. Yeah. Now, I'm thinking about the conversations I have with other writers uh, and people actually have, who've been on, on my show. And there's been a lot of discussion about um, issues like representing people from different racial and cultural backgrounds fairly and appropriately. But I haven't heard so much really about representation in culture, in all kinds of cultures and, and all kind of media for people with disabilities. Why do you, why do you think that is? I mean, it's definitely talked about within disability circles, absolutely. I guess I think the main reason that you wouldn't see that conversation reflected so much in the sort of general, the wider dis um, diversity talk is partly because we're kind of assumed to be included in that, but also to say uh, voices of disabled people in general are often absent, absent mm. even though we're we're shouting um <laughs> mm. a lot of people a lot of people who make the decisions about this um find the disabled community quite easy to ignore in general like they just either they just don't see us or we're often kind of seen as not quite as 
this sounds horrible, but not quite as human. Wow. You know, we're kind of a little bit like a you know a little, a little bit less than because we don't have something like you know we don't have eyes that work so you know it feels very other and very alien mm. and that's quite mm. easy that's quite easy to ignore. You know, people are kind of afraid of what's other and. Yeah, disability yeah. can make people feel really uncomfortable. Like they kind of imagine themselves without sight or without hearing, or you know, what would it be like if I didn't have a limb or without with a brain that kind of betrayed me? And that feels really limiting and terrifying. You know, to an able-bodied person, even if like to me, it's not scary or limiting that I, you know, my eyes don't work properly. But you know, if you're trying to imagine yourself like that, then it feels like that. Yeah, they kind of project that terror onto us as people with disabilities, I think, and so we kind of get left out because maybe we're a little bit too other. Um, I don't know. There's, you know, there's lots of much cleverer people than me, kind of thinking about this sort of stuff. Mm. Um, but that's kind of my take on it. And I guess generally, if you meet a person with a disability in a book, they uh, the, the big problem that we have is that usually they either die to further the story of an able-bodied character um, or they're sort of a, a sugary, sweet, inspirational figure um, that's designed to give you really happy thoughts about how this person has achieved so much sort of despite their disability or while suffering rather than, you know, because of the person that they are. Or the other thing is that, particularly in fantasy books, disabled people are often healed or they're in some way magically gifted so that their disability's eliminated. Um, And it's kind of a way of for writers of you know, sort of saving yourself from having to sit with the discomfort of trying to write a character who's actually blind. Um, mm. Like the number mm. of blind characters in fantasy that aren't actually blind is is quite staggering. Um <laughs> And yeah, yeah, you know, it's yeah. Just a, I, I can yeah. see a pattern emerging here, can't you? Really, I think, yeah, yeah, and yeah, you know, we, we don't in fiction. We very often just don't get to be our own people with kind of our own thoughts and and opinions and personalities. You know, you just you are your disability, and that's you know not kind of the message that you know anyone really wants. <laughs> um, yeah. And it's also it's also not that interesting, I think, to readers in general. Like I think it's much more interesting to have um, you know really fully formed characters who live with disabilities. Um, mm. I mean things things are changing in this kind of space. Okay. You know, slowly but surely. Um, I just think it's important as writers that we become a really positive force for that kind of change yeah. making sure that the stories we tell actually reflect society as it is so how do you think a writer perhaps particularly writers who don't have an experience of a disability how writers who want to present characters with disabilities but in a unappropriate respectful informed way how should they go about doing that what sort of tips would you give them to me, I think the most important thing is to just to ask yourself, you know, am I actually writing a disabled character who is a character, you know, uh, with a personality, with a story arc, or am I using this this character um, as an allegory, as a symbol, or as mm. a plot device, or essentially as cannon fodder for the purposes of building backstory? And, and that's it, you know, they, if you can make them into a character – then you know you're, you're pretty much most of the way there, <laughs> um, yeah. and uh, I mean the best idea is always you know if you're writing something that you don't un- you know you don't understand or you don't have first hand experience is you know to just 
get someone who has that understanding to you know either interview them or get them to read over what you've written mm. um you know you know find out about the challenges that they face i do this with all my, all my characters who aren't part of my lived experience it's, it's just good research you know like i always call up my mum who's a nurse every time i have some kind of medical crisis in one of my books just to make sure i'm not yeah you know getting sure. all my medical knowledge from um house or whatever and you know it's just the same thing the other thing i wanted to touch on as well which which you've talked about briefly is this issue of bullying and i wonder if you could tell us a little bit about just briefly your early experience of bullying and how how you've overcome that and what's your perspective on that now i guess i was very lonely as a kid and i didn't i didn't have sort of any real friends for the longest time and when i did have when i did make friends sort of as a teenager later on i found it really hard to trust them because of the way um kids had treated me in primary school and yeah. sort of my early teenage years yeah. um i would just always be looking for evidence that they would turn against me because that's sort of often with with girls in particular like i was i was bullied by girls and and boys but with girls what they often do is they kind of pretend to be your friend and then they will you know do something horrible to you it's all this kind of trick and so i would often be sort of looking for evidence that Mm. my friends would be turning against me and i i often saw it where it wasn't really there and luckily i have incredibly stubborn friends now um (laughs) and so (laughs) and so i don't really do that anymore i found a lot of solace during those years in books and stories um especially yeah. anything that had a grand adventure i always wanted to go on grand adventures possibly largely because i just didn't want to be where i was yeah um, yeah but it's yeah. been amazing to to me that i've been able to kind of create this life where you know that's what i get to do so i guess over time i learned to sort of be my be my own best friend and sort of that once i was a bit more settled in myself and, and i really stopped caring what other people thought of me i kind of ended up attracting the friends that i still have today um you know kind of yeah the, the ones that kind of think my weird personality is cool <laughs> so yeah <laughs> okay and i wondered if now you, you've described yourself as well as an optimistic person so whatever's whatever's happened in life whatever your situation is it i mean i, I don't know whether this is true this is just something i've read that you are optimistic so can you tell us a little bit about you as an optimist and what how that affects you and how how do you how do you present an optimistic viewpoint to life (laughs) it's it's true i am an optimist um to the point of of being absolutely ridiculous um (laughs) like you know people will be might be like outright cruel to me and i'll just be like oh well you know they're probably just having a terrible day you know like i just (laughs) i could just turn anything into into oh well you know it's on to the next thing it's perfectly fine um, yeah yeah i just have this absolute unflappable belief that everything works out okay in the end um you know sometimes you just have to kind of jump and believe that the universe is going to catch you um yeah. but the important thing is that you know if the universe doesn't catch you that you you know that within yourself you're kind of big enough and strong enough that you can survive the crash <laughs> you know kind of yeah it's, it's all about kind of being okay with yourself and comfortable with yourself and um honestly i just find that if you know if i get upset and angry um especially about things that i don't actually have any control over um then i just i get less work done or i don't get to enjoy the things that i've worked really hard for and it just means that the bad guys win and you know optimism is kind of it's a form of resilience um i don't waste i just don't like to waste 
my time on earth being upset about things that I can't change. Um, I'd just rather put that energy into kind of changing and adapting and you know making the world a little bit better within the, the sphere of influence that I have. And it, you know it can be hard to be an optimist especially in sort of the current political climate, uh, you know, especially while you're still trying to remain informed about what's going on. But yeah. I just, you know, I just have this ultimate belief that the capacity of humankind for kindness is what, and empathy is what's always going to win in the end. Yeah. Good. <laughs> okay. So we've talked a little bit about creating characters and we did it in the context specifically of characters with a disability, but more generally, how do you try to create believable characters and attractive I mean, in the broadest sense of the term, attractive characters in your writing? I guess for me, it sort of all comes back to that empathy. Um, it's about tapping into empathy. Mm. I find in, in real life, I spend a lot more time listening than I do talking, um, okay. which is why it's always it's just why it's always really interesting being on a podcast because <laughs> it's kind of like I get to talk for an it's hour. It's all about you. It's all about you for <laughs> yeah. this time, Steph. Yeah, it's weird. Um, <laughs> and I, I think just all that listening sort of swirls around and around in my head and kind of comes out the other side as what I hope are three-dimensional characters on the page but I'm without that em- without that empathy and that sort of ability to to kind of understand the world through other people's eyes you know just any character is just going to kind of fall flat I think yeah yeah okay and I noticed as well that you write under different pseudonyms, uh, two different pseudonyms, I think. So can you tell us a little bit about why that is? Why why do you write under different names? What's the, what's the purpose of that? Um, so, yeah, so that's correct. I have two different pen names. So I've got Stephanie Holmes, who is my Paranormal Romances, um, and I have SC Green, which is going to be, I'm going to be changing that to Steph Green this year. Okay. Uh, oh, sorry, next year, um, which is kind of my, it's where my, dark science fiction is but also my kind of other random projects so the um, children's picture book that i kickstarted this year um, which is called only freaks turn things into bones um, that will be under under steph green um, and i've got a couple of other projects next year which are also going to be under that pen name and the reason why i have two is purely a marketing thing um yeah it is um you know stephanie holmes she is um, all about a specific, very specific type of story, um, that romance story, and the reader who wants that story right at that moment. Um, and I just, I want those readers to be able to trust that they can always pick up one of one of Stephanie's books, one of my books, and they, yeah. they get the exact experience that they want. Right. And so I just don't want to be surprising them with, you know, my super dark science fiction where <laughs> you know, a lot of people die. Like, it's just, you know, that's that's just not what I wanted to, to do to them. Um, and what's cool about having the two names is that Stephanie Holmes pays pays the mortgage basically and with Steph Green I get to explore sort of really other other creative outlets and projects that might not interest the paranormal romance readers or might not be you know 100% commercially kind of viable but yeah. you know it's stuff I want to do so it kind of fills it kind of fills both wells so that's really cool okay uh you mentioned there as well uh, just briefly that you crowdfunded a book I think is, is that correct yes that's so true. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the method that you go through or the process you go through and the things that you would advise for anybody who wants to crowdfund their book. Okay. So um, I guess I'll tell you a little bit about the 
project. So yeah, the, the book do. that I yeah, it's so the book that I crowdfunded was called Only Freaks Turn Things Into Bones and it was a children's picture book um, about a little grim reaper who gets bullied. And he gets bullied because every time he touches something, it, it turns into bones. So, like, he um, has a good girl who has a pet rabbit, and he touches the rabbit, and the rabbit turns into this, like, skeleton rabbit who, like, jumps around everywhere. Um, and she's like, oh, he's not fluffy anymore, you know, so that sucks. And, and so everyone's mean to him because he's got this this thing that makes him different. And then he meets this, um, this girl who tries to help him come up with ways that he could change basically change to be to be to be able to fit in and then at the end they realize that actually you can have a lot more fun if you just embrace um what it is about you that makes you different Mm. um so um so it's a story that i've wanted to write for a long time and kind of came from you know obviously a lot of my early experiences and i found a i had a friend of mine who's an illustrator and we sort of got together and got talking about it and decided, hey, we could actually make this happen. Yeah, and so we kickstarted. Um, we did a month-long Kickstarter. We what did we do? We set we we had a relatively ambitious goal. It was about nine. I think it was about eight thousand dollars. We we had okay. to raise. Um, and that um is quite a lot for a book, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. Especially a picture book. Um, and we did it, and it was amazing. What did we do? One of the big things I did was uh, hired a publicist who got the story, helped me get the story into a lot of the local media, um, and that really helped sort of raise the profile. Mm. And um, what else did we do? We just we shared it with everyone we knew and bugged everyone. Um, <laughs> and I was very – kind of don't want to um, – like spam people with stuff. But what I discovered was sort of every time, literally I would think, you know, oh, I've sent out my newsletter, so that's kind of done and all those people know about it. But I sent out the newsletter about six or seven times during the the month that we were running it and every single time you could see that more people would sign up. Yeah. And it kind of made, it really made me realize that actually people, sometimes they just, you know, they don't see these things the first time or the second time or the fourth time that you've, you know, you talk about mm. them, but you know they do actually want to hear about what you're doing. What else? And we just we made sure we had a really professional kind of profile, and I think I did I did kind of stuff about it every single day. I was emailing people and saying, "Hey, you know, talk about this. Please talk about this." And the other thing I did was I'm a big Kickstarter supporter, so I support a lot of projects and a lot like a lot of book projects so what i did was i went through my kickstarter list of all the projects i'd supported in the past and i emailed the ones that were kind of had a similar audience yeah i thought like all the book all the book writers and stuff and i said hey i'm a huge supporter of what you do i was wondering when you send out a you know a note to your backers would you consider putting my project in and that yeah yeah and that actually was one of the single best things I ever did because the thing about Kickstarters is you get a huge jump at the beginning when you you know when you're all your friends and family like yes. back you and then you get a pretty big jump at the end because Kickstarter sees that your project's about to finish and they kind of put you up in the algorithms a bit so you get a bit more visibility and also anyone who's like put your project on a on a wish list or whatever gets an email saying it's about to close but in the middle you kind of flatlines a bit yes yes and, but, but for us because i was doing these emails out to all these people and they were putting us I, like i was so just amazed at you know these huge projects that have you know got like fifty thousand dollars kind of raised were sharing our book and it 
it, it kind of stopped that flag in the middle. And so yeah. we kind of had this kind of steady rise and that really helped us, really, really helped us yeah, that's, make it's, it. It's interesting that you, you – that is an interesting strategy, isn't it? So you, you've obviously got projects out there that you, you are really keen to support anyway – and then you can tell them about your own project. So that, that's good. And it, it's quite brave to go for quite a high target on Kickstarter, isn't it? Because you either, if you don't make it, you don't get anything. Is that, that is the case? Yeah, it? exactly. And we worked so hard to get, you know, it would have been such a shame if we got yeah. to, you know, $6,000. $6, because we, we could have made the thing for six, but we wouldn't have had, it would have been very tight. And we wouldn't have had a single, we basically wouldn't have got to keep a single piece of money for ourselves <laughs> um and so you know i yeah so so that's kind of why we went a little bit higher we were like this we've got to make this you know we've got to at least be able to go out to dinner and celebrate you yeah know? absolutely um, yeah why not so, <laughs> yeah and uh, yeah so and and we did it so that was amazing cool. and off off the back of that um uh, i was approached by a small publisher and they've taken on the project so that's been amazing cool. so excellent yeah, got to work with a publisher on it. So, yeah. with the um, um, amongst the perks for that project, did you do a thing where basically people can can receive a copy of the book as a perk? Yeah, and that's the main thing that yeah. we that, that people purchase. So um, there was that, and there was some sort of bigger packs where you could get a book and a t shirt and a like an art print from okay. the, the pages in the book. And most people opted for one book, one copy of the book, or one copy or two copies yeah. of the book, or a copy of the book and a t-shirt the t-shirts were really popular and with the the book element of it did you get a load of them printed and get them sent to you or to to your somebody and they then manually sent them out posted them out how did you do that yeah so we're actually in the process of fulfilling at the moment so i've I haven't actually posted everything out, but basically, yes, everything gets posted to me, and then I have to manually do it all. Um, I looked into distribution, we like fulfillment, we send everything to a fulfillment center, and, and yes. along with the list of the backers and what they need, and they do yeah. it. But the problem is that most of them, they only work for really big projects, yeah, and this yeah. is just too small fry. And it's, it's a little bit sucky because it means that the um, – because I live in New Zealand and everybody else doesn't. Um, <laughs> yeah, this particular challenge for you, I'd have thought, isn't it? Being where yeah. you are. Yeah, and it was interesting actually because um, I because I had to set the overseas shipping so high. We really focused all our attention on New, you know marketing to New Zealand yes. because we figured overseas people wouldn't buy it because of the high shipping. Um, but then round half of our backers are from overseas, okay. which really surprised me. So next time we do one, we're going to focus a bit more on international yes. um, yeah. marketing. Yeah. yeah. I guess if people if people like the idea and they like the, the project and they like the brand, then they're going to buy into it, aren't they? And a, and a little bit of extra money on the postage is, is, is what they're prepared to pay. Yeah, that seems to be the case. So yay, yay people. <laughs> I want to talk to you a little bit, uh, Steph, about – folk tales and legends and myths and all of this all of this kind of stuff and how we as writers can learn from it in both in terms of story structure and why is it that that some of these myths and tales and legends have survived for thousands of years what is it about the way they're told and also what kind of inspiration can we can we draw on these things for our own work cool okay so i guess the thing i that attracts me so much in particular to, to mythology and just kind of history in general and, and 
sort of writers who were writing 2,000 years ago or 500 years ago or anything like that is just how much the human experience across space and time really is universal. You know, we we often, and, you know, even 2,000 years ago, you know, we often focus a lot on what divides us and what makes us different from others and that, that kind of, you know, us versus them tribalist nature. But when you look at the way people perceive the world and, you know, how they use stories to create the kind of moral fabric of society, that, mm. you know, that kind of thing. Mm. Um, we're all the same. <laughs> we're all completely the same. <laughs> um, and we, we haven't really changed. Whenever I read, you know, a lot of my degrees in uh, classical studies. So yes. you know, when you read someone like like Ovid and how he's talking about how you know how to treat a lady when you go to the the Colosseum with her or whatever, um, you know, it's just <laughs> it, it it feels so modern. Yeah, and you know, I just I I, I love that, and I, I think there's a lot that you can learn. about about the human condition when you look at the things that make us the same rather than the, the, the things that make us different because the things that make us the same are kind of the really important things. Mm. And it sounds as if you think that not, not only do we have all those things in common, but they endure, as in they've endured and are consistent over hundreds and thousands of years. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, one of the things that I think makes such great fiction is the fact that we make the same mistakes over and over and over again. Um, (laughs) That's definitely a thing that that endures. We also think the same things are important. And um, yeah, I just, I I love that. Uh, Do you you think there's anything that we can learn particularly about um, character motivation, for example, from from some of these stories of old and uh, some of the things that perhaps we can learn in terms of what we need to put into a story to make it really compelling? Yeah. Um, so one thing that's really interesting is when, um, when I was uh, studying, um, I was really interested in Herodotus, who was this um, Greek writer. And he was a, a historian, and he wrote during the period where Athens and Sparta, the city-states, were at, at war with each other. Right. And he wrote this um, this enormous history, kind of like a history of the world, um, called The Histories, um, very imaginative title. And it, it was filled with all these wonderful details and, um, and things, but what it was really about was it, it was – he didn't think that Athens and Sparta should be fighting. He thought that that we had so much more in common than they did um, differences, and he wanted to show the world that, that basically that that we had much more in common and that we were much a much greater people when we worked together. Um, we being the Greeks when we worked together rather than when we, you know, are fighting each other. And so his history is basically the history of um, the Persian War. So the the uh, the Greeks against uh, fighting off the Persian invasion, and that's the story that is immortalised in um, books like Stephen Pressfield's Gates of Fire and Three Hundred, when the Spartans yes. fought off the Persians at Thermopylae. Um, and so you know, while the Spartans were doing that, the Athenians were fighting them at sea. And it was this huge army, um, just like millions strong, um, says Herodotus. We, we historians think it was a little 
bit smaller than that, but he <laughs> made he exaggerated it in this huge way. And, and 300 is I like I love 300 so much because what they did is kind of take a lot of the things that Herodotus said and kind of really put them on screen. Like he presented them as these, you know, these kind of warriors that were just insane you, you know that had all that makeup on and wore all their jewelry and they were just completely they were completely other they were completely un-greek and the whole thing was about how the athenians and the spartans and everyone worked together to beat off this kind of impossible very alien enemy that had these like giant elephants and stuff like that you know and they and they fought them off and there was just i you know there's just something so universal in that and the way that he used this he was using these kind of mythological tales to kind of create the persians as this this beast that everyone could defeat you know that, that the greeks could defeat if they just work together and mm. sorted out their differences. And I just, <laughs> I, I love that. I just think that's so wonderful and possibly a little bit naive. And yeah, I just, yeah, I just absolutely love that. And I just think there's so much that you can learn from reading the way, you know, people th- like that think about the world. Yeah. 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 Um, so I want to ask you if you've got any kind of particular advice, final advice, if you like, for, for writers. Are there, are there two or three things that you think any writer should really think about and is really important um so for me i i think one of the biggest things is that like there's so much there's so many easier ways in the world to earn a living than as a writer yes so like so many (laughs) just maybe every other way is easier than this so if you if you're going to do this then sure come into it definitely with uh, you know if you want to do this for a living then come into it with a mindset of you know thinking of it as a business but um at the same time if you're not having fun then it's kind of not you might as well be doing any other job so it's got to be yeah you know, it's got to be fun you've got to be yeah. you, you you've yeah. got to be enjoying enjoying it and enjoying the stories that you tell and believing in you know believing in your characters and and the stories and you know it's because if it's not fun then what's the point so i think that's a i think that's a big thing and i, I see a lot of people on um like facebook groups and um author forums and stuff who just feel like they're having kind of having the fun sucked out of it um because they're worried too much about you know facebook ads and you know whatever amazon algorithms and stuff and i think it comes back to that optimism thing you know i can't control what amazon how amazon fiddles with the algorithms and i can't control facebook visibility and stuff like that so you know it's important to understand those things and know what's going on but if you let them sap away your fun then you know yeah what's what's the point (laughs) so just yeah don't don't do don't let that happen you know (laughs) hold on hold on to what it is you love about writing yeah 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 okay so just to close then if people are interested in finding out more about your work how do they do that how can they find out more about you how can they find out more about about the different series of books that you write so the best place to find everything, Steph, is on my website, which is um, stephmetal.com, um, www.stefmetal.com. Um, so I've got a blog there that I update um, really regularly, um, and I've got all a list of all my books and all my different projects, and I've also got a mailing list called uh, The Creative Rebel, which is all about kind of how to – 
know, it's all about writing and publishing and kind of creating this like, you know, awesome career for yourself at, um, as a creative. So, and I publish new articles to that about every week or every couple of weeks. Um, so I definitely jump on there if you're interested in kind of my optimistic, you know, everything's <laughs> going to be okay, take on life. <laughs> and you can also pre-order the Only Freaks Turn Things Into Bones there as well. And you can, but yeah, it's basically like my hub um, for everything. I'm also on all the usual social media, um, usually as Steph Metal. Um, I'm really digging Instagram right now. So if you want to follow me on social media, I definitely recommend um, Instagram slash Steph Metal. And of course, you can find all my books on Amazon and not all of them, but most of them on the other platforms under Stephanie Holmes, um, again with two Fs, um, or SC Green. Excellent. Okay. Well, Steph, thank you very much for your time. It's been great fun talking to you. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's been so much fun. You're um, very welcome. Yeah, and yeah it's been great. <laughs> bye. <laughs> Bye-bye, Steph. Cheers. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt podcast. If you want to find out more about the podcast or me, just go to my website. It's andrewjchamberlain.com. Hold up. 